we again bring greetings to you this morning in the name of Jesus. The one who's still very concerned about what happens in the lives of God's people. I hope we all believe that and I hope we all take it to heart. I do covet an interest in your prayers this morning. I'm not sure if I've ever felt quite the inner turmoil that I feel this morning. It's a, it's a big subject, a subject that in my flesh I would certainly want to shrink away from. Well, no, I'd rather, I wouldn't really shrink away from it. I just wish I'd be sitting out there and somebody else were standing right here. But I do believe it's a needful subject. I appreciate Brother Davies' devotional, the thoughts he shared. And well, I should say this, I appreciated the whole service and the songs that were led. And Brother Gordon's songs, uh, he didn't know, of course he didn't see my points, but they went right with the two main points of the message. The, the first song, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, the need we have of God and of his strength and, and his power and how futile it is to try to do this without him. But it doesn't stop there. Then we need to, to go forward in faith and be what God wants us to be. Rise up, O men of God. We cannot expect the results to be good if we give up. They're going to be devastating, terrible results if we give up. The road can be very difficult and, and be confusing. We talked about that in Sunday school. Sometimes we face questions that are very confusing, but we must never give up. God wants a remnant preserved, and God wants his church to remain faithful. And another thing I thought about is, you know, the world promotes a big game, and sadly the church gets too involved in it at times. It's this game where uh, these teams compete against each other and they, they try with all they've got and, and every year there's somebody else crowned and everybody else is the loser and the next year it starts all over and they do it again. Friends, this is not a game. This is, this is life where all of us this morning will one day spend one of two places in eternity. And the choices we make the kind of support we choose to give or withhold to our families and to our churches will have a drastic impact not only on where we spend eternity, but on where others spend eternity. And what are we willing to give? You know, these athletes are willing to give, basically give their lives to where when they turn 60 and 70 years old, I wouldn't want to live with the bodies that they live with. Probably arthritis and, and lasting and lingering effects from all those years of commitment to something temporal. What are you and I willing to give to the church? Courageous leadership in the church. And let me just say again, I tried to be clear last night. I hope I never come across this weekend as having arrived at the answers or or that I'm here because I have things pretty much figured out, because I don't. But I do want to, by God's help, see what he has to say in his word about courageous leadership in the church. 
Maybe again we'll look at the meanings of the words courageous and leadership as the dictionary gave it. Courageous has the idea of mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. And leadership, the art of motivating a group of people to act toward achieving a common goal. And I'd like to turn to Exodus chapter 3. And this is something that inspired me in Sunday school. It seemed like different ones, different leaders from the Old Testament age uh, were brought up and discussed. And some of the same ones that God laid on my heart as I thought about this message. And we come to Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. I'd like to read that. We don't plan to read a lot of this account. But it's an account where God was calling out a leader. Chapter Exodus 3, verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that, he, saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, but put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now we see here perhaps there's a need for leadership uh, at a level that God's people had never experienced before. I'm not sure how often this scene has been repeated, but if we can somehow grasp the magnitude that God is wanting to lead his people out of Egypt. You go to the, the chapter just before Exodus 3 here, Exodus 2, and it ends with verse 24, And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. And there's a format here that Moses, Moses had had a life that was already full of, uh, of excitement, stages, very early stages of life, and it had been full of excitement, and now, he, now here he was at 80 years old, and God is getting ready to ask him to attempt a feat of leadership that is, I don't think we can grasp it this morning. I'm not sure the exact amount of people Moses was to lead, but I'm sure it looked very, very overwhelming and perhaps like an impossible mountain. Now, I don't know, did God do this intentionally the way he did it when he came to Moses in the burning bush? But I would guess if Moses is like a lot of us are, there were times he would look back and he would think, you know, there was something miraculous. God revealed himself. Uh, maybe he needed that courage to go on because Moses certainly faced times of discouragement and probably wondering, Lord, what is going on here? At times we see Moses' emotions coming out and, and there was times he got upset. And we're not going to go into the story. It's a long, very long story with many examples of God miraculously providing for his people and Moses faithfully fulfilling the call that we see God placing on his life. But there's a format here that I'd want to consider before we get into. And I told you last night we plan to go to the New Testament, to the books of Timothy. 
for the points of the message, but there's a format here that I believe is still in play today. And there's three points here I'd like to think about. And the first one is that God wanted to answer the prayer of his people. God wanted to answer the prayer of his people. Again, we see that in the end of Exodus 2, it said he heard their groanings, he heard their prayers, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and he looked on his people and he had respect unto them. And God wanted to answer the prayers of his people. And I wonder, off, I wonder today if we as leaders ever think about that, that perhaps there have been prayers that have been prayed, that God wants us to help fulfill those prayers or help be an answer to those prayers where people have prayed for their children, people have prayed for those coming on, or people have prayed for people in communities or whatever the case and God wants to answer those prayers. And if you and I prove to, to succumb to the pressures and to give up under the, the, the intense pressures at times and the difficulties and discouragements, do we ever stop to think about what's going to happen to souls that may have been able to make it had we stayed faithful? I tremble this morning when I think about churches that have, that have folded and leaders that have bickered with each other and have fought and have parted ways and people that have become discouraged and said, you know, what's the use? Leaders, we must always remember the price of giving up, the price of succumbing to our flesh should not be an option. God will hold us responsible, and I don't say that lightly at all. But let's not make excuses. You know, Moses, you, you can tell it was an overwhelming feeling. And he's, he, it seems like he almost panics. Lord, I, I can't speak. You know, I, I believe it's, it's unwise for us to start making excuses. God knows all about it already. We can't come to him and explain to him what we're like in any way that he doesn't know already. And the New Testament tells us that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. We mustn't succumb to that, that temptation or that thing that wants to come where we make excuses and we say we can't do it. God can help us. God is very interested in helping people that realize and recognize their weaknesses and their, the, the things that they're going to need his help in. God, I believe, is very, very interested in helping them overcome that. Number two, God had an end goal in mind and successful leaders will always do the same. We talked about that a little last night, but I believe that, that that's something, and Brother Jonathan brought it out in his devotional last night, in order for there to be leaders, there have to be people that follow and, and, and there's this whole picture here that, that this whole thing is moving toward something. And what is it moving toward for the children of Israel? It was moving toward the land of Canaan. But what is it for us today? It's moving toward heaven. God has an end goal in mind. And I believe we as leaders need to keep that end goal in mind when discouragements come, when we're, when we're tempted to give up that courage that God calls us to, and when we get discouraged and we feel defeated, God calls us to keep that end goal in mind. The Bible is so clear in the New Testament that God is not willing that any should perish. In 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. What a blessing. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that certain people, no, whosoever will, 
Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God has an end goal in mind, and he has that in mind for everybody that you and I come in contact with. Every person that he created, he, wa- he longs for them to be in heaven with him. And if you and I fall down in our leadership responsibilities, we're going to hinder that plan. And how sad. But I would say as we think about this point of God had an end goal in mind and successful leaders will always do the same. I would say we need to keep that in mind for leadership at any capacity, whether in the church or in the home or in the school. That if our leadership does not have in mind helping people get to heaven where they can spend eternity with God, I believe we're coming short of what God wants. There has to be a purpose. There has to be an aim. And number three, God uses people in various roles to accomplish his purposes. And let's think about this morning what this picture would have looked like if God would have all at once just said, okay, it's time to go. Why don't everybody pack their things up and head out? There would have been a lot of order, wouldn't there have been? I think there would have been mass confusion. But friends, I've heard some things pretty similar to that when it comes to church leadership. You know, we're all, we, we can all be leaders. We'll just take turns being leaders. And I realize at times it comes from an abuse of leadership. I understand that. But God never gives us the right to say, well, that wasn't the way it should have been, so now we're going to do things in a way it shouldn't be either. God never gives us that right. God calls us to faithfully come to his word, adhere to his word. And there's a scene in Numbers 12 where we see that, and I don't think we're going to turn there, but you, you know the account. Aaron and Miriam rose up, and they said, you know, you're taking too much on you, and we're all led of the Lord. And, and I find it very interesting because the Bible the Bible comes out and it, 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 it says that God suddenly said, you know, I want you three to come out and I'm going to meet with you. And it, it mentions something there that I think we need to take note of as leaders in the church. It says Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And Aaron and Miriam were rising up and saying, you know, we, we need to take, we, we get to do our part too here. We need to do this. And, and you know, God came down very, very clearly on what he thought of that. And I believe he comes down very clearly today when we're not willing, whatever capacity God has for us, whether in leadership or whether in following, we need to be faithful to where God has called us. And in Mark chapter 3, maybe we'll turn to that, to the New Testament, Mark chapter 3, verses 24 to 27. And I read this because Jesus drove a point home And I believe it's something we need to remember that when a house starts to bicker and fight on the inside, that's how houses are destroyed. How often have churches been able to withstand the pressure from the outside, but they weren't able to withstand the pressure from the inside? 
And Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, verse 24, And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. And friends, today the question goes, and I understand this message is largely to leadership in the church, but the question goes, goes again to to me in the role God has called me, to all of us in the role God has called us. What are we doing to strengthen the house? What are we doing to strengthen the church? Are we making it stronger by the way we view our calling, or are we weakening it and tearing it down? Very, very serious question. I'd like to think now about courageous leadership in the church, and today there is no less need of faithful leadership among God's people than there was in Moses' day. And the intent is exactly the same. We've already talked about it. Help people get out of Egypt or the world to Canaan or to heaven. Maybe we'll turn back. We're going to spend most of the rest of the time in the New Testament, but let's turn back to Deuteronomy at chapter 31, verses 1 to 8. We find words of courage here as Moses is ready to pass off the scene. Of course, there's a lot that happened between Exodus chapter 3 and this passage in Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 to 8. And Moses went and spake these words unto all Israel, and he said unto them, I am 120 years old this day. I can no more go out and come in. Also the Lord hath said unto me, Thou shalt not go over this Jordan. The Lord thy God, he will go over before thee, and he will destroy these nations from before thee, and thou shalt possess them. And Joshua, he shall go over before thee, as the Lord hath said. And the Lord shall do unto them as he did to Sihon and to Og, kings of the Amorites, and unto the land of them whom he destroyed. And the Lord shall give them up before your face, that ye may do unto them according unto all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of a good courage. For thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them. And thou shalt cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. And I wonder, can we still claim those promises today? And I think the answer is yes. If we're faithful to the call that God places on us, we can still claim those promises that Moses gave to Joshua where he said in verse 6, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. Note the word, them. God is referring to the enemy nations and he's saying you don't need to be afraid of them because God is going to go before you and destroy them. And today we have enemies as well. In fact, we have, now now it's a different scene today and that's why I think we need to go to the New Testament because we're not called to fight the way they were called to fight back then as far as physically destroying life. But today we have an enemy that's just as real. It's a spiritual enemy. We come to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 and it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principles against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There's an enemy that wants to stop you and I from getting to that land that God wants us to get to. 
And Jesus gave us the promise in Matthew 16. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail or shall not prevail against us. All the tools are there for us. If you and I are coming short of the tools in whatever role God has called us, whether it's in church leadership or otherwise, if we're coming short of the tools, it's not God's fault. God will give his people the tools they need to overcome to make it to heaven, just as he always has. There's another passage, and I don't think we'll turn to this, but in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 20, where David tells Solomon, he's passing on the torch, so to speak, and he said, be strong and have a good courage, and do it. And do it. I wonder what those words, those three short words mean for us today, and do it. It comes down to a a pretty simple concept, and do it. I'd like to turn now to the books of Timothy in the New Testament. And there's another passing of the torch. Here's the Apostle Paul, who I'm not sure who we could use. We plan to use this book of Timothy as he's instructing him. But the Apostle Paul gave his very life for the church. He was spent for the church. And I'd like to try to keep the points largely based on Paul's message to Timothy. As we think about those words from 1 Chronicles where David told Solomon, and do it, I'd like to think about Paul's instructions to Timothy in the books of Timothy about faithful and courageous church leadership today. And the first point I have is always remember your insufficiency. Always remember your insufficiency. And there's a message that comes through as as Paul's instructing Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. He said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And a little bit later in verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. We need God's enablement. We need God's grace. We need it in ways that we, we don't even always realize, but we need it. And I say, I, I say one of the keys to faithfully fulfilling our role in church leadership is we need to always remember our insufficiency. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, what does grace mean? It's the Greek word charis, or probably there's people here that know how to pronounce it, but I don't. But it has the idea, one of the meanings of it is the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. In other words, we need God's presence in our heart so that what comes from our life is not going to be from our own works. He made it so clear there in verse 9. It's not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, the enablement that he gives to his people. And friends, leaders, I say this because I believe it with all my heart. If we forget our need of God's grace, we're going to wreck havoc. And sadly, it's happened at times. We saw it happen in the Old Testament. 
We saw it happen in the life of Saul. And you know the story there where where Samuel came to Saul and he's going to anoint him king and Saul went and hid among the stuff and, and Saul considered himself so little and so needy and the sad words that, that Samuel comes to him with in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 17, he said, when thou wast little in your own sight, and I'm just using my own words here, I can't quote it exactly, but when thou wast little in your own sight, did not God call you to lead his people? What kind of an attitude is God looking for when we look at the needs we have as leaders of the church. Think about Ezra in the Sunday school lesson, to, lesson today where he had such an obvious attitude of we're needy people and he, he put himself right in with the people. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't saying they're needy people. You know the example of, of Samuel when he came to Saul and Saul said, Blessed be thou the Lord. I performed all the commandments of the Lord. And, and Samuel said, well, What's those animals I hear? But, but then Saul's first response is, oh, it was the people. I was faithful, but it was the people. Samuel keeps pushing and keeps pushing till Saul finally backed all the way in a corner says, I have sinned. It's the very opposite example that Ezra gave us today when he said, we have sinned. We could also turn to the book of Daniel and there's, there's something that it's such a beautiful picture there in Daniel chapter 9. Maybe you can read it later. But there's a humility there. You know what? I think it's, it's key enough. I think I want to turn back and read that. But Daniel chapter 9, there's a couple words there, that, a couple of verses there that I'd really like to get as we think about our need for grace and as, as we think about our need for God's help. Daniel 9 verses 21 to 23 Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, and this, this is talking about the respect that God has when, when he sees his people realize their need. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. And it reminds me of the verse in the New Testament where it says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. The key to getting the strength that, God, that we need to have before God is to humble ourselves. It hasn't changed. Romans 12, 3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. We cannot have the courage, we cannot have the strength to fulfill the role God wants us to. Unless we have that humility. And that strong sense of where we actually are outside of God's enabling grace. We cannot have it. There has been a misconcept of what leadership is. In fact, I heard of somebody who in Sunday school admitted it. And maybe, 
I didn't think it was very appropriate to say in Sunday school, but maybe we should be more honest. But the comment was made, you know, do you struggle with wanting to be in leadership so you can have more control? And I think it illustrates a misconcept that is often in our circles when it comes to leadership, where we do not realize the greater the responsibility, the greater the accountability. The greater the responsibility, the greater the accountability. God never willed for anybody to get responsibility that became greater than the accountability. There's people that look on sometimes and they think, oh boy, they've got it made. They can just kind of say how things go and, and then everybody has to obey. You know, I could get testimonies from a lot of brethren this morning that would tell you that's not how it is. The greater the responsibility, the greater the accountability. But leaders, where are we at? A verse that goes right with that is, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall, much be, shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. The accountability that goes with us. And it's hard to calculate the strife that's been caused when leaders forget their utter dependence on God and somehow think they're more important than the team or than the others. Terrible strife. It's hard to calculate the damage that's been done in churches when leaders begin to get getting concerned about who gets the credit instead of God getting the glory. And I've seen a little of that, and I think we need to shy away from it as fast and as far as we can where we're, we get concerned about who gets the credit. Friends, that's never God's plan or design or purpose. The purpose is that he gets the glory and we ought to rejoice just as much if somebody else gets the credit and we ought to be there encouraging them. And it's hard to calculate the damage that's been done when leaders are unwilling to sincerely apologize and repent when in the wrong. And I'm not saying that there's times I think leaders maybe are pressured to apologize when they're they're not sure what they did wrong. But friends, are, are we the type of leaders that if, we, if we've been in the wrong, if we have not been what we should be, can we sincerely from our heart apologize? I was just at the bank recently talking to the banker, and, and the comment was made that, that this banker was in leadership, and the one time there was something that happened, and, and the, this, this, the banker was the manager there and, and told the people, you know, I was wrong. And the employee just kind of froze and said, you know, I've never heard that from a manager. As leaders, we need to be free from wrong motives, things that, that cause power struggles, things that play into my image. And, and I see the clock is moving at a rapid rate of speed. But there's a, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13, that I think we need to take heed to. It says, better is a poor and wise child. Now, let's not miss it. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. The Bible has a way of just kind of putting it right where it is. 
And Jesus, you know, when people were bickering about position and, and about authority, and it says he called a child into the midst of them. And he said, you know, if you're not willing to become like one of these. But you know, with that can come another sense in, in where this thing is misused. And that is when those called to lead give in to heretical mindsets in the church. Because after all, you know, your viewpoint is just as important as mine. So I'm just going to give in and we're just going to let sin creep into the church. And you know what? We have no less chaos in the church. We, we don't have a, any more sound of a church when we allow those things to come in the church than we do when leaders are misusing their power and not realizing where their strength comes from. And the second point is, become a scholar of the message you are called to promote. Go back to the books of Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not, be, not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I say as leaders, you know what, we need that grace and strength of God, but we need to become scholars of this message that we're called to promote. And we need to stand on that message. And we must not give in to the pressures and temptations and, and people that would like to challenge that message. We talked about it in Sunday school today. So many churches have decided, you know what? I know historically this is what people have said the Bible means, but we've kind of gone beyond that. We now understand it means something different. And as leaders, we need to stand against that. This word still means exactly what it's meant for all of time. It hasn't changed at all. God hasn't changed at all. And I wonder sometimes what messages we give to the world. Tonight maybe we'll talk a little about the messages we give to society. But what messages do we give them when we change? The things we used to adhere to and hold to and believe very strongly, now all at once we change. Are we giving the picture that God is changing? We mustn't do it. And I believe the courageous leader that is concerned about God's blessing, will not base his message on what people want and will accept, but on God's message. We need to keep preaching and promoting God's message. There's a load laid on our shoulders. We go back to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And Paul had a lot to say to Timothy as he was thinking about passing off the scene, he said, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And here's the leader that Paul encouraged him, you know, stand, realize the grace that you need to fulfill your calling but but you stand on that word you preach the word be instant in season out of season reprove rebuke exhort because there's a time coming when people are going to insist that the message change so that they might feel justified and you know what's dangerous about that if we make people feel justified in something that is not biblical one day they will get to a holy god that says the message didn't change after all Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. There's been a lot of damage done by reaction. We talked a little about reaction earlier. 
where we see we see something that happened in a church, and so we react, and, and we say, well, they were too lenient, and now we're just going to be, we're not going to have any uh, grace here, or, or, or we're just not going to have any wiggle room, and then people see that, and they say, you know, well, we, we need to react, and we're going to need to become more lenient again, and sometimes you get a little discouraging because it seems it's all a cycle of reaction, but God calls us to come back to this word and stand solidly on it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That brings us to our third point, and that is our authority, our boldness and courage lie strictly in adherence to God's word. And leaders, I think there's something here that we need to take note of. That is the fact that we need to stand on this word. We need to become a scholar. We need to, to, to uh, be enthused about this word. And then as we do that, then we need to have the courage to stand there. With those words, reprove, rebuke, exhort. I'd like to read a couple more verses here. Chapter 4, verse 2. We already read that verse, I'm sorry. But in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, where this is more instructions to a leader, this is to a bishop, Titus 1, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And, you know, we need leaders, we need to be able to stand on this word and and we need to be able to lay out this word. And, and if people choose to argue with this word or if people choose to ignore this word, we can't always help that. But we are called to lay out faithfully the word of God. Just like it said in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. I talked recently to a man who is newly ordained. And he's in a setting where, where the whole thing of assurance of salvation is questioned, and I think probably most of us are familiar with those settings. But you know what he said? Blessed me. I encouraged him. I said, you know, I've seen a lot of damage in their circles because people don't know where they stand with God. And you know his response? He said, when I preach and use scripture, they can't argue. And he's exactly right. We need to stand on the word of God. But leaders, I'd just like to encourage all of us Do we know where we stand? We talked about voting in our Sunday school class this morning. Do we know where we stand? What about when someone asks for baptism without church membership? I don't know if the leadership here has faced that. We face that in our church at home, and many churches have faced it, and it goes right along with what's happening today. We would like benefits without accountability. Many people are are wanting that today. They'd like church membership, or they'd like baptism without church membership. What about when our stand on nonconformity is challenged and lines keep getting pushed? Or when support for the church is not what it should be? When there's strife between brethren and both equally convinced they're right? Maybe that doesn't happen in Virginia. But it certainly happens in Ohio. Where there's strife between two individuals and they're both equally convinced they're right. What about when there's a refusal to repent or to forgive? Or when there's a misuse of technology and entertainment? 
And leaders, as we think about this authority and the boldness that comes as we stand on the word of God, have you ever noticed that at times it seems like the issue to deal with is always the next issue? Let me explain. Well, you know, that was pretty bad, but let's just let it slide. We'll address it next time. And somehow it seems like when the next issue comes up, you know, we probably should, but I think we'll wait one more time. And I wonder, today I look around, I look around at my own family and I look at where people have gone. And I wonder what would have happened if the leaders had taken a faithful stand. No, I'm convinced not everybody would have listened. I understand that. But I think some would have. And I think some today would still be in more solid and sound positions with the Lord if leadership and if churches had taken proper, faithful, biblical stands years ago. And what a difference. And I believe we as leaders need to get a fresh vision of that. And we could turn back to the book of Daniel again, but you know the account there where Belshazzar comes to him and, and he said he had this vision. And he said, this is what happened. And you know, Dan, the courage of Daniel just leaped out at me as I read this account again. And Daniel knew exactly where he stood and he knew exactly where Belshazzar had gone wrong and he explained it to him. I don't know, was he concerned for his life? Belshazzar had made promises that whoever comes up with an interpretation of this vision is going to have a chain around his neck and he's going to have all these things. He's going to be the third ruler in the kingdom. The first thing Daniel tells him, this is noteworthy, because Daniel wasn't concerned about the gifts. The first things he tells him is give your gifts to somebody else. But this is what this vision means. And Daniel laid it out faithfully and squarely just the way it was. You've been living in disobedience to God. And that's why you had this vision. And the Bible tells us that night Belshazzar was slain. And there was a new king put in his place. Do we know where we stand on the word of God? And point number four is be completely non-combative as you take your stand. Be completely non-combative as you take your stand. This doesn't just apply to the church. This applies to, to places in society as well. But listen to what the Bible has to say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And he starts out with, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle, apt to teach, and patient. Leader, there's, leaders, there's a question that comes to us. Can we firmly and biblically take our stand, but leave our emotions in their proper place? And I know the feeling of emotions wanting to rise up. In fact, we've had JWs at our house. And sometimes it's a little dangerous for me to engage in conversations because my emotions want to enter in. But the damage we do, when, when perhaps there's people today that are out of the church because leaders have risen up and they've, they've kind of hammered them, so to speak, and let them have it with their tongue, and the Bible says the servant of the Lord must not strive. It's not about quarreling. It's not about arguing. It's not about trying to forcefully put this person in their place, but rather appeal to them and explain where this differs from what the Word of God teaches. Be completely non-combative as you take your stand. And I know we face pressures. I hesitated to share this a little, and I want to be very discreet, but we had a case in 
council meeting where we were just getting raked over the coals. And finally, one of the ministries spoke up and reminded the brother, you know, ministers have feelings too. And he kind of hung his head. I know we face pressures, but God calls us to stay non-combative. We don't fight. We don't, we don't lash out. We don't use our tongues to do destruction. The Bible says we're to be gentle and we're to be patient. And point number five is we are called to fulfill our duties with absolutely no bias. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 22. And this is in a little different context. It's talking about widows and it's talking about elders that sinned. But it says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all that others may also may fear. And then he goes on and he says this, and I believe it's such an important message and principle for leaders. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. James chapter 3 verse 17 says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And leaders, you know, we are called to, to determine at times what's going on in a situation, but God calls us to find out what is right instead of who is right. So often we're, 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 we can be tempted with that, that we try to figure out who is right. We, we try to, to use partiality or, you know, depending who does it, it doesn't quite, it isn't quite as bad as if somebody else would have done it. And we develop bias within ourselves. And I believe it's part of the call to courageous leadership. And may I say this, and I say this carefully, but leaders, if it's our children who are in the wrong... They should be treated no differently than when it's somebody else's children. God calls us to fulfill that leadership. It was said of Jesus in Luke chapter 20, verse 21. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. You know, when, when people do things and somehow because of the position they're in, it's treated differently than if somebody else would have done it in a different position, we're doing them no favor. We're doing them a disservice. The same thing applies to me. If somebody somehow is not willing to tell me my fault, I don't think the end results will be good. And if we, if we operate in the church with partiality and bias, the end results will not be good. Well, there's so much more that could be said from these books. I'd like to close with two things to consider as we think about church leadership. The first is example. We talked about example last night in the home. But Paul said something to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. He said, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, 
in faith, in purity. And then in Titus 2.7, where it also talks about being a, a safe pattern for people to follow in the church, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. I believe God wants us as leaders to take note of that, that and to take courage in that. He wants us to be an example that's safe for people to follow. The second one is persistence, and we referred to this a little as we talked about about tough times and things leaders face, but it's persistent. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4, and you see the encouragement here as Paul thinks about passing off the scene, and he thinks about all the things that he suffered. You know, Paul faced, faced pressures, and he faced accusations, and people that were very passionate about what they thought of him and thought of the church, and But he says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness, or endure difficulties, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier." And tonight, or this morning, if I can just encourage us as leaders that the example we set and the persistence we embrace will have major implications to future generations. The example we set, the persistence we embrace will have very major implications that will perhaps last for generations. And if we find ourselves where we come short in leadership, let's remember it's not too late. Let's repent. There's no shame in leaders repenting and and making sure they're current with God. And I know the feeling of being overwhelmed at my own weaknesses and struggles and shortcomings. But let's also remember this. God is observing. And the Bible gives us a promise in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And verse 4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory. Fadeth not away. Let's keep the end goal in mind. And let's faithfully fulfill what God has called us to. God bless you. We'll turn it back over.